Oh, good morning, everybody. Our passage for study today will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. It's Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. If you could please turn there now. Many years ago, I did a course on evangelism that was called Evangelism Explosion 3. And it's quite possible that some of you may have heard it or even done it because it was a worldwide program. The EE3 course was a systematic gospel presentation that was based around two very penetrating questions. One, if you were to die today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? The second question, if you did die today and you were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, those are great questions, aren't they? But what I really want to talk about is one of the illustrations that this course used for answering objections. It addresses this very commonly held perception that heavenly admittance is dependent on a set of scales that are held by St. Peter at the pearly gates, whatever they may be. Your life is assessed when you get to those gates, such that if you've done enough good stuff during your life to outweigh the bad stuff and pull the scales down on that side of good, then you crack the nod to stroll on in. Well, that of course is contrary to scripture and it is also complete rubbish. There is only one entry to heaven and that is by grace obtained by the death of Jesus. And the illustration that I'm about to tell you about demonstrates this by the example of making an omelette. Now let's say that you fancied a nice omelette for breakfast. Well, you'd round up your eggs and your tomatoes and your cheese and your mushrooms and whatever you liked and you'd get your eggs and you'd start busting them into the mixing bowl with some of the other ingredients. And you're quite happy for a while, but whoops, there's a rotten one just gone in with the, with the rest. Oof, not very nice, is it? So you have to throw the whole lot away because just that one bad egg in the mix makes the entire thing ruined and inedible. And sin does the same thing. Just one sin ruins any human for admittance to heaven. And that shouldn't be a surprise because there are many, many scriptures that confirm this inflexible rule. One sin and you ain't in. And our text today is one of those scriptures. So let's read and explore it so that we both understand its relevance to ourselves and we can also offer it up as an explanation to explain why that good deeds model is, as I said, rubbish. Now I'll read the whole of the first part of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not be partakers with them. I think there's quite a contrast inside this text here because Paul starts off with these images of love and sacrifice and 
sweet smells, and then he just dives off into fornication and wrath. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? But isn't that the point? As we've just been saying, there are no scales. There is no spiritual gray space between condemnation and redemption. There's no third way, as I've been reading some very misguided pastors have been saying of late. And this is very meaty stuff. In fact, I can immediately think of four important themes that flow from this verse. Firstly, praise. As a believer, we can read this passage and say, praise the Lord for saving me from that, for giving me that inheritance despite the filthiness of my previous condition. And then secondly, there's privilege. We should recognize that we can never hold any feelings of moral high ground over our fellow earthly citizens because that mess described here, well, it's exactly the same place that we all came from. Our heavenly inheritance of eternal life is a great privilege, yes, but never one that ever had anything to do with our own efforts. Thirdly, perspective. There is a warning in this text for believers. Since it may be absolutely fine to continue to live in these sins because, well, there's no apparent immediate consequence for those that we can see around us practicing them daily, we might well just go and have a little bit of a try of them as well and just slide back into that. Friends, God hates these sins enough to make them punishable by eternal death. So if we have any respect at all for the gift he has given us, then we're going to be extremely careful not to go near the top step of that slippery slide, no matter how much fun it might look like from that perspective. Fourthly and finally, prudence. There is a warning here for those who don't yet know Jesus as Saviour and Lord. You see, those ideas about the big man upstairs with the white beard or the I've tried to be a good person all my life philosophy. Well, I'm sorry, but they just don't cut it. Many of the things that the world tells us are part of normal life, like the pursuit of personal gratification, whether that's through trying to gain wealth or some other means, are very sadly lies that divert us from the truth. Gaining entry into heaven isn't about trying to balance good with bad. This text here spells the truth out about how God sees those so-called normal things, and it does so in black and white. They will not lead you to heaven. They will lead you to hell. There is only one way or the other. There are no shortcuts. There are no detours. Only the blood of Jesus atones for our sins. Now, there's a very obvious aspect to what we read today that I want to deal with immediately. It's very important. It can appear from these verses that believers who backslide by indulging in these sins mentioned here will lose their salvation. That there is no what is called the perseverance of the saints. That, that uh, term perseverance of the saints is a theological term. And my good friend, who I've never met but I'd love to meet, Wayne Grudem, defines it like this. He says, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. 
Now you notice I emphasize that and in the middle. This definition has two parts to it. It indicates first that there is assurance to be given to those who are truly born again. For it reminds us that God's power will keep us as Christians until we die and we will surely live with Christ in heaven forever. On the other hand, the second half of the definition makes it clear that continuing, carrying on working in the Christian life is one of the evidences that a person has been truly born again. And it's important to keep this, this aspect of the doctrine in mind because often false assurance is given to people who are never really believers in the first place. And they think that just saying yes to Jesus is enough and they carry on with the life that they've always had. All told, the perseverance of the saints is a pretty complicated subject and it would take some time to fully explore, so I'm just going to stick to some of the basics. Why do we believe this? Well, firstly, we have the proof of Scripture. There are lots of texts confirming that those who are truly born again continue as Christians to the end of their lives and then go to heaven to be with God. So here's just a couple of them that were told to us by Jesus himself. Firstly, John 6:38 to 40 For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And again in the same book, John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When we read such strong promises like this, all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Everyone who sees the Son, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, may have everlasting life and I will raise him up. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We see language like that. It's clear that we, once we genuinely belong to Jesus, there is just no way, there is no way at all that we are ever going to be taken from him. There, are, there is an argument around John 10, which frankly I'd have to say is a bit silly, that says, although the text says no one can snatch Christians from God's hand, it doesn't mean that we can't remove ourselves by our own choice or actions. I just can't follow that through, because I don't know about you, but I am sure that I am someone. Okay? I am someone, and that because of the status of being a one, I must fall under the rule of the verse that no one is able to snatch a believer from the Father's hand. Who is greater than all? Who can have stronger hands than our Heavenly Father? No one. We might also ask some philosophical questions like this. Do we believe that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was perfect and sufficient for all sins? Do we? Yes, of course. Well, how could, such, how could a person ever fail then to be completely and perfectly and permanently saved by such a complete 
perfect and permanent sacrifice. It's not logical at all, is it? And further, if it's possible that one may somehow lose their salvation, well then it suggests that somehow what Jesus on, did on the cross wasn't, you know, wasn't quite good enough to do the job properly. Maybe you'll have to get up there again for another go on behalf of that particularly bad sinner. Well, that's nonsense. And I strongly reject such a notion because it's just so opposite to everything we know about God. If God were a God of half measures, he would be useless to us. We would have no hope at all. But we know from Scripture and from our own experience in our own lives that that is not the case. You see how it all unravels with a little bit of poking at it? We can absolutely rely on the sure and certain fact that all those who truly belong to Jesus will remain in him and go to be with him in heaven when they die. Hallelujah. That is the end of the story. Hold the phone. (laughs) We're not quite done here yet because some of us might be thinking about situations where someone apparently has made a commitment, may have walked a very credible walk for quite a long time, and then, oops, it all turns to custard and they become a mass murderer. Will they go to heaven? Do they remain in Christ? Well, the answer is a qualified maybe. You see, our principle is always true for those who have repented and embraced Jesus as a Lord and Saviour. But unfortunately, there's no winking red light that comes on on their forehead to indicate that that's the case or not. So we never know what's happened in their heart, but God does. So maybe that mass murderer really did make a true commitment. And if we truly believe that Jesus' death on the cross conquers all of the sin, then we need to take on board that it really does potentially mean all and every sin, even those that we consider to be unforgivable and disgusting. The reality of it is that if we if we bundle all of our own sins together that we did throughout our lives, I think we'd find them to be just as unforgivable and disgusting. However, all that said, it is very unlikely that a person who turns their back firmly on Jesus ever truly yielded to him in the first place. Because the external evidence of the internal conviction will always be the defining characteristic of those who are definitely saved. We know, we have the personal experience that the power of God is mighty indeed. So, how can it fail to leave its mark? How can someone who has known that power, loving them, supporting them and transforming them can ever deliberately choose to cast it aside? Why would they? It would be like deciding to stop breathing. We can rest totally secure in the knowledge that the Lord holds us firm in his hand and will never let us go. He is absolutely faithful. He has the power and authority to resist any and every effort by Satan to prize us from his kingdom. We cannot lose our salvation. But that is not a gift to leave in the cupboard. It is a gift to be used, to be admired, to be shared to the glory of God. We should praise God for its provision. We must work with him to keep it in good condition and we must share it with others when the possibility arises. And it's not out of some dry or dreary obligation, but because of grace and love 
And that was the spirit that it was given to us in. So, with the assurance of salvation in our hearts and those five thoughts that stem from the passage, and I'll just summarize those as praise and privilege, perspective, prudence and perseverance, well, let's go on to look at our text in some more detail. So, let's just start by rereading it. Ephesians 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, we've already spoken about the absolute certainty of salvation. It's truly wonderful to think about that, but do we think much about its opposite? That as certain as salvation is, so too is damnation for those who do not embrace Jesus as Lord. And this certainty is what Paul is pointing out here because the Greek that he uses to speak about knowing is doubly stacked. He essentially says, you know, knowing. Now, unfortunately, it isn't so clear in this New King James Version that I use, but other translations that you may have in your Bible, they will say things like, you know for certain, or you may be sure of this. And this is the communication strategy that we all use. In fact, I have just done so when I said that salvation is absolutely certain. I mean, absolute. It's not an indefinite term, is it? There's no grey space around its edges for misunderstanding, is there? And certainty is similarly strong. So really, I ought to be able to use either of those on their own and be completely certain, oh, there I go again, that my meaning will be perfectly understood. The problem is that us humans are not always that quick to believe what we hear, and so we often choose to reinforce a point in this way to make sure that it has driven home. Paul is reminding his readers in a very definite way about destiny, and that's something we usually don't spend too much time thinking about, particularly when we are young. But each and every one of us has one, for as surely as we are born we will die. And every breath that we breathe, the one you've just done, brings you closer to that moment. So, what will be your destiny? What will be my destiny? What will be the destiny of the person next to me at the traffic lights? In the supermarket? Or at the desk behind me? I think this passage here in Ephesians causes us to think beyond our own little bubble of life, doesn't it? But there's actually no time to ponder what that will be because we are told immediately what the destiny will be for those who practice fornication, who are unclean, covetous, or worship idols. There is no inheritance for them in God's kingdom. Now these sins that I've just described, fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, well, they may have mental pictures attached to them that suggest that they aren't commonplace or modern and therefore aren't relevant to the real world around us. Well, maybe except for some really weird people in Tibet. I mean, they're into idols, aren't they? Well, the truth is that they are all relevant because they are all practiced daily by us and by those right next to us and we ought to be aware of them. So I want to explain what's meant by these in more modern language. So what's a fornicator? Well, it's a person, male or female, who engages in sexual immorality. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, of course, there's lots of ways to be sexually immoral. 
Obviously, having a sexual relationship with somebody outside the bond of marriage is a very obvious one. But of course, there's also things like homosexuality or a love of pornography. Maybe just underwear adverts on the television or the much worse stuff that is around. And these things are very commonplace today. It's pretty much expected that young folk, and maybe some not-so-young folk, are going to have many sexual partners. And that's a good thing, because you'll be ready when you go into marriage. Homosexuality is aggressively promoted as being normal, and pornography is celebrated and circulated pretty much everywhere and in every way that you can think of. In fact, we swim in a deep sea of sexual immorality, and that is profoundly dangerous because the desire for pleasure is so strong in every human, and it's way too easy to get. It's one thing when it's difficult or dangerous or embarrassing to find that gratification, but it's so much more perilous when the means are literally at our fingertips. So what, we might say? It's not a problem for me. Isn't it? You can't be certain that it isn't a problem for the person in the pew right next to you. And there's certainly a giant problem right outside these church doors. And these things are our problem if we are to claim the name Christian. So what must we do? We must counsel and we must pray. We must practice holiness by guarding ourselves and we must speak out against immorality. We must do these things because they are part of the good works that God has prepared for us to do. And we must do them because above all, if we say that we do not care, then how can we say that we value the care and love that the Lord has lavished on each one of us? His love has flowed into us. And so it must flow out. Next. What is an unclean person? No, it is a consequence of missing some special ritual or forgetting to use the soap. It's far more profound than that since it affects the whole person, through and through. And the Greek word in a moral sense refers to that which is unclean or impure in thought, word, indeed, especially sexual sin. And the word foul is an excellent fit. The general idea is to describe those things which are morally indecent or filthy, so it's actually unsurprising that this word is repeatedly applied to filthy, demonic spirits in the Gospels. The unclean person sees dirt in everything, simply because they are dirty inside. They behave outrageously without restraint in the very worst of ways. And this immoral filthiness and wallowing in the world's way describes everything that makes a person unfit to enter into God's presence. Now we might say that it's very easy to identify these terrible characters. And they're out there on the street, aren't they? These blokes with the, the tats and the Harley Davidsons with no silences. And the women who sit behind them. We'll stay away from them and we'll be fine. Actually, I believe they are often much closer than we think because all we need to do is go into our bathroom and look in the mirror and there they are. It might not be a terribly attractive idea to think that I might be in the same league of filth as what I see to be the most godless in our society. 
But it's a very helpful exercise. Firstly, it's going to give us some idea about how the Lord feels about sin. Our sin. We were and we are that disgusting and yet the Lord went ahead and he saved us anyway. I lack the words to say how wonderful that is. Isn't that something to give him praise and thanks for? Secondly, what we see in that person in the mirror ought to remind us that we ought to have some humility and be gracious in our thinking because at heart we are not really so different to that man on the holly. The next category of depravity that excludes a man from the kingdom is covetousness. <laughs> when I hear that word, the first image that always pops into my mind is that of our skinny friend Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. And we might think of coveting as just an obsessive kind of desire for something that only hurts its owner, but actually it goes a lot further. And here, in this text, it's given its proper meaning when Paul goes on to describe it as idolatry. The Greek word used here for covetousness describes one who is grasping. They're always reaching out. They always want more. A person who is eager to get something else and especially stuff that belongs to other people. And it might look like this greedy kind of want is a very different thing to idolatry because as I alluded to earlier, it maybe brings to mind ideas of people in strange costumes who are chanting in front of grotesque carved images. But in fact, idolatry should be properly understood to include any circumstance in which humans raise the importance of any created thing above God the Creator. Viewed in this way, it's clear that today, with our obsession for sports and all kinds of things consumer, covetousness and consequently idolatry is an epidemic. And that disease is being spread daily through the TV and the radio and the newspaper and the internet and everywhere. And its method of application has become very aggressive too. When I began my first job as a salesman many years ago, I believe, I remember getting a little booklet that was all about sales techniques. And it was all about using open-ended questions to find out what customers' needs were and then matching those needs with the benefits of my products. Well, it seemed to me that needs met by benefits, well, that was a pretty reasonable idea. But today it often seems that the aim of many businesses who are working through very, very clever advertising agencies is just to skip the whole needs But Never mind what they need. Let's just tell them what they need and make them want it. And it sounds very reasonable too, after all. You know, I'm like every man. I work hard. I deserve one of those. It will make me happy. And it will make me happy for a while. At least until the next bigger, better, faster, or shinier thing comes along. And this is the seductive danger of idolatry. And although I've picked on buying stuff, idolatry comes in many, many guises. Some make sport an idol. Some make their hobby an idol. Some think that participating in civic activities is incredibly important. They make that their idol. And these things can grow to consume our lives and take our vision 
off the Lord. For a Christian, this is a dangerous and disrespectful distraction. For a non-Christian, it can be absolute disaster because they might spend their whole lives doing things that appear to be very meaningful and useful and important and then find out too late that they were none of these things as they stand in judgment before God. Let's be clear. God hates idolatry. Here are some of the ways it is described in Scripture. It is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. It's degrading. It's demonical, defiling, enslaving, and abominable. It is an abomination to the Lord. I think God really hates idolatry above almost everything. Imagine, how would you feel if you were the creator of the universe? You created everything. You created men, and then they started thinking that the stuff you made is more important than you. I think I can understand why God hates idolatry. And consequently, we are warned to have no company with those who practice it. We are warned to flee from it, have no fellowship with it, keep from it, testify against it. And if we find ourselves in in its grasp, we should turn from it. Having heard this sort of language describing covetousness and idolatry ought to make us extremely cautious about its effects in our own lives. I'm not saying that we should never daydream a little or admire beautiful or well-made things, but we should never allow those daydreams to deteriorate into an obsession or allow anything to move the image of God as our Lord and Provider from its most important place of honour in our lives. We must look to Him We must trust Him and obey Him in all things. The Lord God is front and centre. No thing that He made can ever compare with Him. So what are the consequences of these sins? Once again, the text makes it very straightforward, doesn't it? There is no inheritance for those who practice these sins in the kingdom of Christ in God. And here we must be certain to understand that what is meant by the word inheritance doesn't just mean some kind of physical reward or honour. It's much more important than that. The Greek word can refer to a portion or a gift that was received as a special something from someone who has died. And that ought to be a very significant clue because, of course, what is meant here is more than just a few dollars. It is the gift of salvation. Eternal life with God as opposed to eternal condemnation in hell. And no person whose life is characterized or defined by the sins that we have discussed today has any chance at all of entering heaven. And note that I've been careful to use these words, characterized and defined. I've already addressed the matter of losing one's salvation. Clearly, it is impossible that it can happen. So this verse is specifically aimed in talking to those who are not saved. Despite that, many of us will be rightly concerned that they can see these sins in their own lives, although they are believers. So, what does this verse say to us then? Repent. Go to God and ask for his forgiveness. Ask 
for the Holy Spirit's help to stop doing them. This is one of the many miracles of salvation that despite us continuing to sin, God is always faithful, God is always forgiving, and he will still reward us with eternal life. Let us not imagine, though, that we will escape standing before the Lord to answer for our sins. I'm not looking forward to that. But what we will escape by his grace and his mercy is his terrible wrath and judgment. It's just incredible. And since it is so, we must treat this privilege with due honour, never abusing it by continuing to sin with the attitude that it'll be okay because God always forgives me. That would be a really terrible and abusive way to treat such a gracious gift. Well, we're almost done now, but we still need to deal with verse 6, which contains an important warning to us all. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The problem is that all the sins that Paul has described here are very basic, and the desire to commit them is a very powerful thing in every human being. We love sex. We love to party. We love to accumulate stuff. And these things aren't necessarily wrong because there are circumstances for which they were properly created. But because we like them so much, we go way beyond those proper uses. And to warrant that overreaching, we also love to hear hear people telling us stories and giving us excuses for practicing them because they agree with and feed those powerful desires. There are some very eloquent arguments out there for turning your back on God and living the Kiwi dream, aren't there? And they come from all over the place. But in the end, they are always empty words. Why? Because they only bring temporary gratification. Nothing that we have or do today is going to join us when we die. It all stays behind. It all turns to dust in the end. However, the essence of our persons, the reality of what we are is never defined only by our flesh because we were created by God as eternal spirits and therefore our main concern should be focused on the eternal, not on the here and now. So don't let those empty words today drag your attention away from the fullness of forever. The consequence of falling for empty words is profound. In love, God created the universe, limitless in its scale and complication. In love, he continues to manage its every detail, every moment of every day. That's how big he is. So the exercise of God's wrath, as promised here, ought to be properly feared and respected. So that's it for today. I know that everyone who listens to a sermon gets something different out of it. Sometimes a little, just a few words, sometimes a lot. Sometimes the most surprising of things. Sometimes a refreshing nap. But my prayer for you today would be that there would be just two things that you would take away with you from this sermon. 
Firstly, search yourselves for these sins and be ruthless about eliminating them. Secondly, our response to reading a text such as this should never be left at the superficial level of, I'm glad I'm not like them. Yes, we can and we should rejoice over our salvation. But that rejoicing ought to be done with a sense of perspective. We know what we have escaped from. And so we know what they face. If you saw a man in a burning house, you'd go and rescue him. So why on earth would we abandon the people around us to this fate? Our hearts should be moved to pity and our hands and mouths to action for those who remain unsaved. Make the gospel plain to those who live in sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Yes, they are frightening, but they also remind us of the glory of what you have done for us and what waits for us. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. But Lord, the two always go hand in hand. And I pray that because we know both the glory and we know the terror, that we would be moved to share your gospel, your good news, with those who face only the latter. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.